Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise caution for children under 13. On July 7, 2012, tension suffocated Andy and Patty Grove's home in Arkansas's War Eagle Valley. Five days prior, their 26-year-old daughter, Catherine, had vanished. She'd left little behind. There were no clothes in her closet, nor any kind of note letting them know where she'd gone. Then, after days of silence, their phone rang at 11.30 p.m. On the other end of the line was Catherine. She was in Wells, Texas, with a group of people who were taking good care of her. This would be the last time she'd contact them, because she couldn't listen to anyone but her elders anymore. At that moment, the Groves knew two things. Their daughter was in danger, and they had to save her. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the early years of the Church of Wells in Texas. We'll focus on the beginnings and beliefs of founders Sean Morris, Ryan Ringnald, and Jacob Gardner before they packed everything and migrated to the town they now call home. Next week, we'll cover the controversies that surrounded the Church of Wells as they grew increasingly insular, including the case of Catherine Grove, a missing person who ended up at the Church of Wells. We have all that coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal... Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In churches all across the world, people from all walks of life join together to form a community. They're bound by purpose, faith, and hope. At the head sits a humble pastor who acts as a spiritual shepherd meant to guide the congregation forward. Yet on occasion, sometimes the ones meant to lead will take their followers down a dangerous path. This was the case in the Church of Wells, named for the small Texas town it resided in, and led by three charming 20-something elders. In a wooden building, Sean Morris, a young, lanky preacher, wanted to keep his flock close. He often recited Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. From his account, Sean Morris had been a Christian for as long as he could remember. Spreading the word of God ran in the family. His uncle, great-uncle, and great-grandfather were all preachers, and his grandparents taught Sunday school. Yet, at a certain point in his childhood, Sean felt empty. The religion that so many of his relatives professed to follow seemed like a hollow facade. This became especially apparent in the early 1990s. Sean's father worked in the oil industry and moved his family around the world for his career. 
The more Sean saw of the world, the more disappointed he became in his family's faith. They seemed to ignore God's eternal judgment. Sean found his family's Christianity lifeless and heartless, and deemed them godless Christians and practical atheists blending in among the masses. To Sean, they were only outwardly facing Christians who didn't follow the high standards set by the Bible. Instead, his family was, quote, void of any obedience to God. He refused to continue in their path. So when the family finally settled down in Texas, Sean entered high school at Lutheran South Academy, a religious prep school in Houston. There, his hardcore religious inclinations were firmly rooted. According to a childhood friend, Sean would always pick out very specific verses about fire and brimstone. He completely missed everything about love or gentleness. In 2004, during his senior year, Sean spent countless hours independently studying the Bible. What resonated the most with him was the concept of biblical literalism, or the belief that unless specifically noted as a metaphor, everything in the Bible should be taken literally. And the only way to avoid damnation was strict repentance. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. While there's nothing inherently wrong with biblical literalism, like anything in this world, when taken to the extreme, the results can be harmful. Dr. Blake Victor Kent, an assistant professor of sociology at Westmont College, said in an interview with Forbes that people who take the Bible literally tend to perceive of God more as a person who can be interacted with. You can talk to God, he hears you, he talks back. Kent explained that biblical literalism grounds the roles of prophets in the Bible. He said, this is how the Bible presents God. He's a being that talks to prophets and prophets talk back. Therefore, it's easy to see how someone who subscribes to biblical literalism may feel that their deep connection to God might actually be a calling. To further his commitment to Christianity, in the fall of 2004, Sean enrolled as a religion major at Baylor University in Waco. But his fellow students lacked conviction. They weren't much different from his own family. Yet that didn't dampen Sean's faith. Instead, it seemed to galvanize it, and Sean was spurred to action. One brisk morning, 18-year-old Sean Morris placed the weight of his lanky frame upon a milk crate. There, he preached to students in front of the Tidwell Bible Building with a bullhorn in his hand. He shared sermons of damnation and interrogated fellow students about their faith. For Sean, it was a way to proselytize and bring people closer to God. But to others, it often felt like harassment. In an interview with the Texas Monthly, one classmate recalled Sean asking him how much he hated himself when he accepted Jesus into his heart. There was little doubt in Sean's level of religious devotion, but the same could not be said of academic matters. A former roommate recalled that rather than studying or doing homework, Sean spent hours memorizing the Bible and praying in his closet. According to classmates, Sean often engaged in heated discussions with the professors that slowed lectures to a halt. He argued that everything done in class was useless and pointed to Bible verses that, in his mind, immediately solved the issues at hand. In one lecture, Sean gave a biblical explanation of why women were expected to be submissive to men. In addition to citing scripture, he said confidently that he could beat up any woman. The roomful of students reacted in shock. 
With the whole class looking on, Sean clarified, nine out of 10 girls can't beat me up. It's unclear if Sean faced any disciplinary actions stemming from this outburst, but it certainly left its mark on his fellow students. Sean's abrasive nature and archaic mindset clashed with many of his classmates. Although they were nearly all Christian, the ferocity of Sean's faith rubbed many the wrong way. Despite his lack of interpersonal graces and misogynistic views on women, Sean somehow found a long-term girlfriend and fellow undergrad, Kasha Martins. When the pair first met during freshman year, Kasha couldn't stand Sean's unending evangelizing. But that summer, they forged a bond over scripture study. When they returned for classes in the fall, the two were close friends. Sean also returned to campus quads with his megaphone, but that turned out to be short-lived. Unfortunately for Sean, Baylor's campus police confiscated his bullhorn and demanded he stop. Despite this rebuke, Sean never gave up his strict faith. For her part, Kasha not only stayed the course, but found herself enveloped by Sean as she increased her devotion to God. While the pair weren't physically intimate at all, their partnership filled the majority of their waking hours. Kasha constantly attended communal dinners and Bible study sessions at Sean's apartment, where they discussed their commitment to each other and God into the early mornings. The two of them also attended Antioch together, a non-denominational church in Waco. Attendees of Antioch reported that the Lord showed them holy visions. There, Sean had his own premonition, that he and Kasha would someday get married. For Sean, this must have seemed like a reassurance from God that he had set out on the right path. And if God was speaking to him, that must mean he's a prophet. Coming up, Sean forms bonds, creates a ministry, and takes to the streets. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the mid-2000s, college student Sean Morris had solidified his Christian faith and literal interpretation of the Bible. However, he still struggled to find a community of people that he could completely relate to. He and his girlfriend, Kasha Martins, attended a Waco church named Antioch. While it was more in line with what Sean had hoped to find when he left home a year before, the experience still didn't live up to his strict version of faith. Fortunately for Sean, over the next year, he connected with one fellow attendee of Antioch, Ryan Ringnald, 
He was also a student at Baylor, majoring in speech communication. Ryan devoted all of his time and attention to his pastimes and passions. This included club tennis, disc golf, and online gambling, all of which he threw himself into with full force at one point or another. However, halfway through his college career, Ryan experienced a change. The things that had once filled him with so much joy now left him feeling empty and remorseful. While he'd grown up going to church, he realized his faith had been lax. Now he began seriously reading scriptures several times a day. He prayed late into the night, abstained from drugs and alcohol, and no longer dated. Ryan's friends initially thought it was just another fleeting hobby that he pursued with the same obsession with which he approached most everything. However, as time ticked on, they came to realize this phase of his life was simply a new him. He did a complete 180 turn away from the community of friends he'd established in his early undergraduate career. From Ryan's point of view, this was the lighting of an everlasting flame in his soul. There's little doubt that Sean and Ryan grew closer together after this transformation. The pair helped foster one another's strict view of Christianity and became partners in preaching the Word of God. While still attending Antioch, they met Jacob Gardner, a student at nearby McLennan Community College. Jacob bore a similar spiritual timeline to his Baylor brethren. Before being born again, he claimed his father falsely converted him at the age of eight. As he grew older, he experienced a similar level of contempt for his family's half-hearted Christianity. The camaraderie between Sean, Ryan, and Jacob sparked fast. The three devout men found a deep connection in their near-identical faith and their inclinations to engage in contentious conversations. Sean became infatuated by some of Ryan and Jake's doctrinal positions, including an insistence that the King James Version was the only acceptable translation of the Bible. As Sean's time with the other two increased, his conservatism progressed. He started complaining about his girlfriend Kasha's appearance. He accused her of being immodest, even when she dressed in t-shirts and sweatpants. Sean insisted that if she didn't change her clothes, she was insulting God. Soon, everything Kasha did was wrong, not just her clothes, but her actions. She eventually believed that the thoughts she had were wrong. Kasha grew weary of arguing with Sean. She followed his orders, opting to go without makeup and wear oversized clothing. Soon, Sean not only had control over her wardrobe, but her life. Sean eagerly handed out chores to Kasha. He gave her his bank account information and instructed her to pay all his bills. He explained that instead of getting a paying job of his own, Sean needed to devote all of his time to the study of God's word, and therefore he needed her financial support. In a discussion with Texas Monthly, Kasha later attributed the intensity of her relationship to something called proximity theory. Proximity theory is a psychological phenomenon that fosters a higher level of attraction towards someone when you spend more and more time with them. At a university away from everyone she had known before, meeting new people like Sean was to be expected. The social incubator of a college setting expedited the amount of time Kasha and Sean spent together, which placed them on a fast track to an impactful connection. Unfortunately, that impact proved to be detrimental. The more time that Kasha spent with Sean, the more she turned away from other aspects of her life, most notably her loved ones. She disappeared off the face of the map to pursue her theological passions and the partner who watched over her with intense vigilance. 
Despite Sean's best efforts to keep Kasha devoted to him, though, she soon found herself questioning everything. During their senior year in February 2008, after a 10-day trip to Nigeria to visit Sean's parents, Kasha reached a turning point. After a year and a half together, the couple finally shared their first kiss. While for Sean, this might have been a moment of elation, Kasha said that a switch flipped in her brain. After that brief moment of physical affection, she knew that she had to end things with Sean. Sean didn't take the news well. God had sent him a vision of their marriage, so in his eyes, breaking up and not getting engaged meant that Kasha was disobeying the Lord and renouncing her faith. He tried repeatedly to change her mind, but Kasha held firm. It was over. With the partnership on the verge of rupture, Sean made one final desperate move. He texted her that he would rather see death than live a life without her. The implication was clear. Sean taking his life would be her fault. Even with the threat looming over her head, Kasha took stock of Sean's controlling behavior and left the toxic relationship. Sean likely felt crushed by the breakup, but instead of wallowing in the sadness, it seems that he picked up the pieces and focused on his studies. Though he'd sometimes struggled in the classroom, that spring he graduated with a bachelor's degree in religion. With that out of the way, he set his sights on his next big spiritual move. With the help of Ryan Ringnald and Jacob Gardner, Sean founded You Must Be Born Again Ministries. He named the group after John 3, 3, which reads, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Free from his unfulfilling alma mater, and fueled in part by the disintegration of his relationship, Sean began to spread his message of strict adherence to the Bible to others, igniting an array of reactions. The trio took to the road. They proselytized from Texas to Florida, up through to Philadelphia, and even made a trip to South Africa. Along the way, the group was just as confrontational as Sean had been during his early years at Baylor. They'd often stop at college campuses to spread their stricter and truer version of Christianity. The trio likely felt that they were doing the Lord's work. They wanted to save as many people from damnation as possible. They preached the perils of impending damnation to everybody from Halloween partygoers and commuters to Catholics after Mass. Their theology dabbled into Puritanism, an archaic sect of Protestantism, with a strong disdain for those outside of the fold. Often their targets were already Christians, but those that the group saw as not Christian enough. Sean, Ryan, and Jake had long harbored an embittered attitude toward Christians, who they believed were unsaved. What that really meant was Christians who didn't subscribe to biblical literalism. According to a Gallup poll from 2017, that represented about 76% of all Christians in the U.S. The trio honed in on this large population for conversion. They used the contempt they often faced to fuel their journey as they continued to preach day after day. They weren't thwarted by the hate they received in response to their confrontational message. Rather, they found it an indicator of operating as Christ-like figures in the world. As such, they expected just as much hatred as Jesus saw on earth. It made them feel like prophets. 
Along the way, they posted about their journey on their blog. They regularly update the site with posts and YouTube clips of their proselytization efforts. While they often weren't successful, they did find converts. After all, even if they only reached one in a thousand, that was still a new member of their fold. They were likely people who wanted to be saved or desired to have a pure connection to God, one the trio could help foster. As the group continued to travel throughout 2009 and 2010, they picked up a handful of followers. It's unclear if these members trekked also across the country or if they just religiously followed the blog. Either way, they were hooked on the message. While the men's souls still churned with the fervor of their convictions to convert the godless masses, being on the road was exhausting. After two years crisscrossing the nation, they started to search for a home base where they could hang their hats and preach to their growing congregation. Eventually, in 2010, the group settled in Arlington, Texas, where Sean's older brother Jesse owned a house. During this time, they briefly named the group the Church of Arlington. With this home base established, Sean, Ryan, and Jacob began referring to themselves as elders. They invited many of the followers they'd met on the road to move to Arlington to be nearer to them and their new church. The elders began preaching in a more controlled environment to those who already were on board with their message, yet their time in Arlington proved short-lived. Enough members joined the elders that by late 2011, they'd outgrown the house in Arlington. They needed more space, a location where everyone in the church could live nearby and worship together, preferably in an area where the cost of living was much lower. In December 2011, two members of the church, Rick Trudeau and Chris Faulkner, went to find a home. The pair set out in the church's RV to find the perfect place. They traveled across Texas before divine intervention answered their prayers. On New Year's Eve, while the couple was steadily making miles, their RV broke down in the small town of Wells, Texas, about 173 miles southeast of Arlington. Instead of feeling disheartened, the two members took it as a sign from God. They called back to Arlington, and it didn't take long for the group to pack everything up and move to Wells. Little did anyone know at the time, including the 792 who already called Wells home, that their lives would radically change forever. Within a few months, the elders would attempt to completely take over the town. Coming up, the elders rebrand to become the Church of Wells. Now back to the story. In early 2012, after four years of ministry, church elders Sean Morris, Jacob Gardner, and Ryan Ringnald resettled their conservative Christian group in the small town of Wells, Texas. They'd come looking for an inexpensive place where their dozens of devoted followers could all live close by. Wells was a town of 792 people. It took only two minutes to drive from one side to the other along Highway 69. With such a small population and size, the town didn't even have a local police department. But most locals didn't mind. They felt safe. There were other local churches, and the one grocery store in town had a small selection. So, when the recently renamed Church of Wells came into the picture, things didn't seem too odd. After all, many of the churches in Wells already had similar doctrines as the elders. At least on the surface, they were all traditional Christians. Through careful savings and donations from their followers, the elders bought a massive, weather-beaten wood structure tucked just off the main road where they could gather for worship. 
According to locals, though, the Church of Wells didn't stop there. They seemed adamant to buy up as much property as possible as soon as they dropped anchor. Tommy Durham, a local, recalled that they were going around town to any empty house and knocking on doors, asking neighbors, is this house for sale? One of the many buildings the Church of Wells procured upon its arrival was an R&R Mercantile, the town's only grocery store. Having control over the only goods for miles gave the Church of Wells a powerful presence over the town. Not only that, but it gave several of the church members who had uprooted their lives to come to Wells a place to work. To finance these countless purchases, the church relied on offerings from their devoted congregation. While Sean later told a local ABC news station he didn't require members to surrender anything to him, it seems likely that members felt obligated to the church. He'd made his followers' devotion to the church unshakable. Despite the expansion, members of the Church of Wells attempted to make a good first impression on the town. They rode bikes around town to introduce themselves and their message. When the church was still new to Wells, an 84-year-old widow in town welcomed in a few young missionaries who came to her door. Initially, their interactions were kind-spirited. They engaged in neighborly trade between biblical conversations. She served them coffee, and the missionaries offered her groceries in return. But no one in the church could sit idly by and allow a supposed Christian to remain lost. Much like the elders who preached on soapboxes, the church members unleashed a tirade on the widow when she told them about the televangelists she watched daily. The church members attacked her, demanding that these TV preachers were false prophets. If she didn't repent, she'd go to hell. Fed up with their aggression, she told them that they were no longer welcome in her home. When they told her she was going to die, she replied, you are too. The group may have found a home in Wells, but it soon became clear that there wasn't much settling in their settling down. They hadn't given up their old ways. Instead, they continued using the game plan they developed as touring street preachers. The Church of Wells made a point to stir up trouble as a means of spreading their gospel. They walked the streets, Bibles clutched in their hands, preparing to preach at the drop of a hat. They rode their bikes late into the night, ranting about damnation, something that struck other townsfolk immediately as odd. In response to these actions, some locals feared that the church was a cult trying to envelop the town and erase any traces of what existed before. They argued that Wells' lack of law enforcement made them an easier town to prey on. But Wells Mayor C.W. Williams was willing to give the Church of Wells the benefit of the doubt while abstaining from any plans to interject into the operations of the new church. He only voiced his dislike of the use of the town's name as its moniker. Pastor David Goodwin of Wells Falvey United Methodist Church felt much the same way. He didn't believe they had the intention or voting strength to take over the town, but questioned the name. He worried that when someone heard the name Church of Wells, they would infer that everybody in Wells must go there. To get a better understanding of the group, Goodwin spent a long evening with several members of the Church of Wells during an event with his Methodist church. He found several members playing basketball with his youth group. Worried by what they were saying to the children and preteens, the pastor invited them inside for a warm meal and a conversation. After five and a half hours in their presence, he cemented his stance on them. He came away from that meeting with a certainty that the members of the Church of Wells believed in a God of wrath, not a God of love. From this moment on, Goodwin felt hesitant about the church. 
Throughout the town, there was a growing sense of worry. The church slowly grew in size and seemingly became more cloistered in the process. One resident of Wells found a wall of dissent when they attempted to attend one of the Church of Wells services. Church members told her that she couldn't just show up out of nowhere. Before attending, they said she'd have to first take studies. They were selective with who they let into their flock, and few Wells locals made the cut, apparently. Interestingly, the group's actions closely followed along with something called the BITE model. First posited by cult expert Stephen Hassan, BITE stands for Behavior, Information, Thought, and Emotional Control. This includes the dictation of appearance, imposing rigid rules, requiring permission for decisions, and exploiting your subject financially. Within the BITE model, the leader restricts the intake of those who oppose their views. Contact with non-members is restricted as part of an intricate process to influence how a person thinks, feels, and acts. The elders are certainly flexing their control, but to the roughly 200 congregants of the Church of Wells, nothing seemed to miss. They were all just trying to follow the word of God so they could be saved, and the trio at the top helped secure it. The worry in the town continued to simmer in the first few months of 2012. The elders did little to ease local concerns, and there appeared no way to stop the growth of the congregation. Then, in May of 2012, things in Wells boiled over when news of a shocking death reached the locals. At 4 a.m. on May 27th, authorities received a 911 call from the Wells Manor Apartments. A three-day-old baby had died. When they arrived to investigate, sheriff's deputies found the body of Faith Pursley lying in a bassinet in the master bedroom of the apartment. Along with her parents, several members of the Church of Wells were there, including some of the elders. Everyone cooperated and explained what happened. According to them, Faith had trouble nursing and immediately seemed in declining health. To save her, the group decided to fervently pray over her in hope that God might shine His grace down on her and bring healing. Unfortunately, their prayer didn't seem answered. At 1 p.m. on May 26, she quietly passed away. However, in a failed attempt to bring her back, the faithful continued to pray over her body. Only after 15 hours of being unsuccessful, they called authorities to reveal her death. Over the following days, the news of Baby Faith's passing sent shockwaves throughout the town. Nearly every worry about the church seemed confirmed. Some even questioned if something more sinister had happened to Faith. In the subsequent autopsy, however, investigators found that Faith had died of natural causes. She had had pulmonary valve stenosis, which caused her heart to have trouble pumping blood. It later came out that Faith's mother hadn't been receiving prenatal care and hadn't been aware of any of Faith's problems. No one ever faced charges in Faith's death. Instead, the community viewed her death as tragic, though likely preventable. For the Church of Wells, Faith's death opened them up to even more criticism than before. Yet, the elders didn't seem concerned and instead doubled down on their insular and strict biblical ways. One recruit was 26-year-old Catherine Grove, a devout woman one year younger than Sean and Ryan. She'd first run into the group two years before at a Bible translating conference in 2010. 
Since then, she regularly communicated with the church online. Recently, she'd studied nursing to help her grandfather through his battle with leukemia. But after his death, she felt lost. She was overtaken by a cynicism toward the world that matched up to that of Sean, Ryan, and Jacobs. So she decided to start over in Wells. In July 2012, Catherine left behind all of her possessions in Arkansas and headed for Wells. Little did she or the elders know, her inclusion in the Church of Wells would draw intense scrutiny. The battle between the church and Catherine's parents would threaten to bring the whole group down. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of The Church of Wells, where we'll explore the disappearance of Catherine Grove and her family's many attempts to bring their daughter back. For more information on The Church of Wells, amongst the many sources we used, we found Sonia Smith's articles in Texas Monthly extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Cults was written by Autumn Palin, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 